Hey everyone, welcome to the 10-7 podcast. This is the first episode of a special five-part series called Meeting the Moment Using Data to Reimagine Criminal Justice. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This series is a partnership with Recidivis, a nonprofit organization that is using data-driven tools to help guide change in the criminal justice system. Last fall, I interviewed the executive director of Recidivis, Clementine Jacoby, for an episode of our podcast. And to be honest, that discussion was so interesting, it left us wanting more. Criminal justice and mass incarceration are immense problems facing our nation. And the idea that data might hold the key to much-needed reforms seemed like a topic worth a much deeper dive. The fact is, the United States has become the global leader in mass incarceration without showing any corresponding decline in serious crime. We have a system that is massive. We have a system that is entrenched in our society. It has foundations in racism and it has created generations of Americans who have been lost in the system. At 107, we have a mission. Make things that matter. So exploring the issue of mass incarceration fits within our values, and we deeply appreciate the partnership of Recidivis in making this series happen. Over the next five weeks, we'll look at this issue from a number of different angles. We'll look at the forces that got us into this mess, how government and technology might work together on reform. We'll look at the challenges we face navigating the built-in biases of technology. We'll also look at how technology might lead us toward a change in our mass incarceration culture. And finally, we'll finish the series by looking for signs of hope that solutions are on the horizon. Each of the episodes will feature an interview with a recidivis expert, but we also wanted to be sure to ground this entire discussion in the fact that incarceration is a human issue and that it impacts people's lives in a profound way. That's why we're going to lead off each podcast episode with the story of Tara Simmons, a state legislator in Washington who spent time in prison and has worked hard to overcome the many obstacles that can prevent people from escaping the criminal justice system. Tara's voice reminds us that this issue is not just about data, it is about human lives, and it is about hope. With that, I'd like to introduce part one of our discussion with Tara Simmons as she tells us about her path and her experience in the criminal justice system. My name is uh, Tara Simmons, and I was actually born in Olympia, Washington, uh, but I lived between my mother and father. My father lived in California, so I kind of went back and forth between the two of them. And so uh, between Washington and California is kind of where my childhood years were. Do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I have two brothers from my father and one sister from my mother. So no full siblings, uh, three half siblings. And they've all had their kind of journeys as well. Um, One of my brothers, unfortunately, is still uh, incarcerated, has spent most of his life incarcerated in and out. My other brother, Mm. thankfully, found recovery also and has, I want to say, about seven years in recovery. And he actually was just ordained a pastor in his church. Then my sister lives here locally and wow. has found some success, has actually followed in my footsteps. Seven years ago, she got her GED and she recently graduated with her bachelor's degree and I'm really proud of her. What do your early teen years and high school years look like? Yeah, I was up here in Bremerton, Washington, where I live now, um, for the most part during my teen years. And it was a really difficult time. I was actually in and out of homelessness and foster care. I ran away from home. I I never lived with my parents again after the age of 13. I, you know, experienced a lot of violence and abuse uh, living homeless on the streets. And I became pregnant at 14 years old. And so I had my first son at 15. That changed my life. I, I went back to high school. I had not had any high school credits and 
I actually completed all four years of high school in one year and graduated at 16 with a little baby. I lived alone in my own apartment with my new son and really was just committed to giving him a better life. I was the first person in my family to ever graduate high school, uh, let alone go on to college. It was funny, when I graduated high school at 16, I really didn't know what my plan was, but a neighbor told me about financial aid and how I could go to college and actually receive money to do that. I was very committed to you know, changing our generational like curse of substance use disorder and incarceration and poverty and violence. I went to college at 16 and uh, started there at Olympic College, a community college here in my hometown and graduated at 19 and then went on to the university and got my nursing degree by the time I was 21, my bachelor's degree in nursing. And I was a registered nurse for quite some time. What gave you the strength to know that you needed to do four years of high school in one year? That seems remarkable for someone who is 16 and has a baby. I think it was a real deep commitment to doing my best to change uh, the circumstances for my son. And I was really motivated by being in poverty. Honestly, I did not want to continue to live in poverty. And so... I really just wanted to get through school so I could start earning some income and not raise my son in poverty. What happened after you graduated? After I graduated from nursing school, we lived here in Kitsap County where I live now, and I worked in a variety of nursing positions. I was finding a lot of success in my career, but I still was struggling with healthy relationships and substance use disorder off and on, just, you know, a mental health uh, trauma from my childhood. I think what I've learned, you know, really along the way is that the adverse childhood experiences, unless you really get the opportunity to heal those, uh, it's going to impact your life forever. And so now reflecting back on that period of time where I might have been successful to other people on the outside. I was really struggling with a lot of trauma and emotional issues because of my childhood still. Yeah, your early years are so formative and they kind of set the course for your future in in the most part. And it's so hard to, to change that given your circumstances. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what event occurred in your 20s? that sent you on the downward spiral? Well, I think it's a culmination of events. And so, you know, my father dying was definitely a part of what led to me being around illegal drugs again and pushing me into addiction of illegal drugs. But I will say, you know, when my father died, like I had been trying to care for him and also work and raise my kids. And it was a lot. Uh, I was already taking prescription drugs prescribed by my doctor. And also I had an injury where I had fallen down some stairs. And so doctors were prescribing me opiates for the pain and then uh, uppers like Adderall to give me more energy. I was under the care of a couple of doctors who, in retrospect, were trying to help me with prescription drugs. But these prescription drugs were causing me to not make good decisions either. But when my father passed away, you know, it was a time of obviously deep grief and emotional pain. But then also my family members who were active illegal drug users started coming around to like share in the grief together. And they were doing illegal drugs. And that's where I ended up uh, switching from my prescription, (laughs) prescription drugs into illegal drugs. And that was ultimately my demise within the period of 10 months of using illegal drugs every day. I had been arrested three different times for theft and for selling my prescription drugs to get illegal drugs. Yeah, that was a really difficult time and I was out of control. And yeah, I was arrested three times before I ended up going to prison. Well, the biggest charge was delivery of my oxycodone And so I sold to an informant, you know, a a few pills. I wasn't like pushing kilos, but it's still illegal, you know, and that was the charge that actually sent me to prison. But then I was also charged with 
possession of drugs, uh, possession with intent, unlawful possession of a firearm because there was a gun in a rental car of mine, and then organized retail theft. I was stealing from Walmart to support my habit. I I got five charges all at once and ended up with a 30-month prison sentence. Wow. How do you feel about the informant? I guess when you said informant, it made me think like you were set up or something. How do you feel now about the situation that you were in compared to how you felt back then? Obviously, I don't have any resentment towards them. They were also a sick person suffering with substance use disorder. And it's kind of the tactics that, you know, law enforcement uses to try to get to the top. And they asked me, you know, when they arrested me that, you know, basically my charges could go away if I also cooperated with them and did these like control buys on someone else. It's the tactics that law enforcement uses to try to get to the, like, whoever is bringing it into the county. I do appreciate that, you know, I had some intervention. I will say that I think uh, our whole system of the way we are traumatizing already traumatized people who are suffering with substance use disorder is not helpful uh, because I think there's better approaches to stopping people from selling drugs and using drugs than to use these kind of interventions from law enforcement. So it's something I'm working on now. We'll hear more of Tara's story in the next episode, but before we jump into our main interview, I did ask Tara for her thoughts on the issue of mass incarceration as a uniquely American problem. From my perspective, mass incarceration was created around the time that slavery ended and a way to continue to have an underclass of people. And you can no longer discriminate against people based on their skin color but you can discriminate based on a conviction record. It was trying to kind of weed out the deserving and undeserving people in our country. We've built this system of criminalizing everything from poverty and behavioral health issues and so much more. And I think it's really rooted in our country's love for racism. And that's evident in the disproportionality of who is involved in our criminal legal system. And so there's been lots of things that have fueled mass incarceration. Our sentences have gotten tougher and tougher and longer and longer. We've passed things like mandatory minimums and three strikes you're out. And the whole war on drugs has really contributed to mass incarceration. And so now we're trying to undo some of those things. And it is so hard to undo it after we've created it because there are people that are very much believers in these policies and in this mindset that people that commit crime are inherently evil and they deserve to be punished for the rest of their lives, pretty much. And it's so hard to undo it. And I have to fight every day to re-educate and look at science and data that shows that, you know, after about 15 years, you're not really getting any further rehabilitation. You're not improving public safety by keeping people in cages. You're spending a lot of money doing that. And you're you're not getting the public safety benefits of, of those kinds of policies. Also, you know, people really like to talk about victims versus offenders and, and these types of conversations without really understanding that every single person I met in prison was a victim first. They kind of use stories of victims to create these policies that are really over-inclusive, and they legislate to the anecdote and legislate to the extreme cases instead of looking at research and data and really thinking through what, what is going to create safer communities. Tara's story is one of so many that demonstrate the thin line between issues like childhood trauma, hopelessness, and addiction, and of course the ever-present threat of mass incarceration. What can we do to try to break a cycle that has now been entrenched for generations? And how did we get to this point in our nation in the first place? To shed some light on this, I'm pleased to be joined by John Tilley, Head of State Engagement at Recidivis. John, before we begin our discussion, can you just give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you got involved with Recidivis? 
Sure. Well, nearly nearly 30 years in the in the field of criminal justice in some uh, form. Uh, prosecutor, uh, obviously lawyer, um, legislator, spent almost a decade in the state legislature, the House in Kentucky, uh, moved to an appointment to be the Secretary of the Justice and Public Safety Cabinet in Kentucky, which um, housed everything from corrections to the state police to public defense and a number of things in between, including juvenile justice system. And have, have spent most of that time pushing, pushing to reform the system and to, to get better outcomes and to achieve a better return on investment uh, in, in public safety generally and a more just, to, to make for a more efficient and just system, a more fair system. And what's your initial reaction to Tara's story? I know Tara uh, and love that she is serving uh, in a state legislature. And uh, she, she said so many things which resonated from the idea that uh, the vast majority of those who are serving time in prison or jail are victims themselves. That legislation is often to the extreme. I think Justice Holmes essentially said something more eloquently than this, but that, you know, bad bad incidents, bad cases make bad law. And, I, and I've witnessed that over the near decade I was in the legislature, and certainly before and after as well. It certainly began long before my time, and it's still going on. I witnessed it as I watched some testimony just just this past uh, month. Uh, and so it, 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 it continues, despite knowing more than we did when it began. I'm struck by the racial disparities. I mean, we know that the uh, majority of people in prison are people of color, that, you know, black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated, that, you know, the sentence of a black man uh, to a similarly situated white male is about 20% higher. And so the, those kinds of things go on and on. I mean, I guess I just wrote an op-ed on bail reform, the need to end cash bail. The average bail for a, a black man is $10,000 higher than a similarly situated, you know, white man. And so we, we know those things, those, those um, disparities exist. We know that, as she said, that we have criminalized poverty. There's no question we, we've done that. I mean, that's, that, just, that is represented in the, in the nearly half million people we're holding on some bond amount in jails, local jails, regional jails all across the country. So, so much of what she said is rooted in the data and rooted in the science and the evidence that we have before us. Mass incarceration is a major problem in the United States, and what I would love to try to trace back with you, if we can, is how we got here, and and what, and where are we? I know it's bad, um, but how does it compare with the rest of the world, and how far back does it go? One of the things that really struck me about uh, what Tara said was that this has been going on since slavery, that we have this... Um, that we haven't had this issue for, you know, 20 years, 50 years, that it goes back a long time. Obviously, it, it goes back. I think, I think what's more instructive is to look at this explosion in the population, which really began in 1980 and, and continues uh, to today, despite some, some modest declines in population. So, so just look at, well, first of all, where do we go back to what you initially said? Where do we rank? in the world? What's our place in the world? And I think this has been said so many times, but it bears repeating that, you know, we, we comprise less than 5% of the world's population, yet we incarcerate nearly a quarter of its prisoners, nearly 25% of its prisoners. And it's worse for women. You know, for every um, three women incarcerated somewhere in the world, one of those women is sitting in a, a, a United States jail or prison cell. And so nearly a third of all the world's uh, you know, prisoners, women's, women prisoners are here in, in the U.S. And that's, that's just um, <laughs> striking still to me to, to say it this many years later. We've been saying it for so long. So, you know, and it's still true, even though we've had these modest declines, those numbers you know, are still holding true. I mean, and it's, it's just, um, you look at so many countries that we would expect uh, the, the rates of incarceration to be higher, and they are, are simply not. And, and again, and it's worse for women. I just, you know, one state people, Connecticut's made so many strides to decarcerate, yet their incarceration rate for women, it's one of the best in the country, our country, but it's higher than Russia's. Rhode Island, Rhode Island, the, the, lowest, the, the lowest female incarceration rate in our country is Rhode Island. It's still higher than Saudi Arabia. 
And so those kinds of things just kind of roll off the tongue, but they, they stand for something that we, we are experiencing still over incarceration. And it, it is this, 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 so for her to speak of, of mass incarceration, it, we, we clearly are in love with prison as a solution for better public safety. And whether you're a conservative, a moderate, or a liberal, it's, it's true and it's been said by so many, we cannot build our way to public safety. And that, that's simply not true. Um, it wasn't true when this explosion began, and it's not true today. And there are so many reasons for that. Happy to discuss them. But, but we, we, we're, you know, how do we get here and what is here? We're still experiencing um, a reliance on prison that is, uh, to me, still a national tragedy. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's enabled this mass incarceration. There's so many different things that have felt like they've worked together to get us to a place where we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. Let's talk a little bit about what's enabled this mass incarceration. You know, I, think, I think using as, as a base what I referenced before, the, this explosion since 1980, uh, and I think one would also be able to very easily track the explosion in drug arrests, the, the incredible increase in the number of drug arrests, and, and the idea that in that, in that same, roughly same period of time, I think, in, in, in fact, that growth rate I gave you was, let's say, from 1980 to 2008, I think. And then 2008, I think some significant efforts at reform began across the country in states, um, not, not, not federal prison uh, reform or federal criminal justice reform, but state reform. Uh, and so for that, that period of 1980 to 2008 was that massive growth, which is 500%, uh, by the way, since that time, uh, as, I, as I may have mentioned. But so there's a 500% growth rate, and, 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 a, and again, a, an incredible rate uh, of increase in, in drug arrests. And over that, over that same time, uh, I think drug arrests have increased uh, 10 or 11-fold. And the number of obviously drug drug offenders. I mean, again, I think it's I think the number is actually closer to eleven fold, you know, from yeah, from like forty thousand to four hundred and forty thousand individuals in prison for what are considered you know drug offenses. And that's again, that's uh, that also is striking. I mean, I I've heard it said that we've been making the same mistakes since nineteen seventy one, which which some some count as the as the beginning of of you know what many call the war on drugs. You know, I've always been careful to not uh, to not you know criticize in one sense. Certainly, I, I think I think there's a plenty to criticize. Don't get me wrong, but I think we just need to change the way we we approach the, the drug scourge. And and, and certainly, I, I'm one for for favoring uh, treatment and alternatives to incarceration when at all possible to to do that. So we've we've certainly there's so many things that have failed us, but. Trying to, you know, trying to to incarcerate our way out of out of addiction or substance use disorder or or mental illness to, to use jail and prison as a way to to combat those um, conditions. Um, you know, let's let's use substance use disorder. It's a chronic brain disorder where relapse is just a reality and it's part of the disease. But yet we can we continue to punish relapse. So how did we get here? I think we got here by criminalizing. What it, what is a disease in substance use disorder? We we got here by criminalizing mental illness, by criminalizing poverty, you know, by by allowing bad cases to make bad law. As Tara said, legislating to the extreme, by thinking that sentence length is a deterrent, uh, not to suggest we, we need we need proportionate sentence length. I think she mentioned, and I know I listened to her entire interview, and I know she mentioned making sentences proportionate, and that certainly we've. We've uh, used uh, enhancements to, to laws. That's another contributing factor, whether it be uh, drug offenses and the aggravators that go with them or persistent felony offender laws, habitual offender laws that are called in so many jurisdictions, where, where these tack-ons, these additional years added to sentences can become draconian and, and really illogical. Um, the three strikes and you're out uh, laws that it are oftentimes just bear no resemblance to reality. And so those things have all contributed. It is clear from the data. We also have a decentralized, fragmented system as well, don't we? we? It's not like we have one overarching policy and one overarching system. Everything is sort of broken up into pieces. You know, again, I spent some time as a prosecutor, and 
also when you look at how many, uh, you break things down to a local, state, uh, the national level, clearly. I mean, and, and, and it's been famously said that when you know one state, you know one state. And so clearly every uh, every state in some sense is, is, is different. Um, you know, states with, with the same criminal code, they sentence uh, uh, defendants, uh, individuals differently than other parts of the state. So there is incredible disparity. Um, there are incredible inequities across the system. And so, yeah, that fragmentation and the lack of, of, of unity and the lack of uh, standardization and the lack of some sense of uh, really equity across the, the board is, 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 is at play every day in our system. So, yeah, I mean, that, that plays a role. I mean, there, there are, you know, over it, for instance, there are just thousands, I think 18,000 um, law enforcement agencies. So you, you, begin, to, you begin to see that it's, it's criminal justice is an, an inherently local uh, problem. Uh, not, to, not to say that, you know, the, the, the federal criminal justice reform isn't, um, isn't, isn't, uh, uh, doesn't play an incredible role. It, it does, and, and certainly... Um, what happened with the First Step Act is, a, is a, a good first step. And I think those of us who worked and worked on it, I worked on it and certainly was proud to play a role in it. I wished it would have gone further, but certainly it, it accomplished some things and it has benefited people and it's a good first step. We now need the next steps. But states, I'm, I'm proud that the vast majority of states have enacted some significant reforms and that state prison populations since that 2008 time have been uh, declining again, albeit modestly, but um, at least not surging with incredible growth like you know, like the population was before. What is the first step law? Well, I mean, it's it's a series of, of reforms passed by Congress in 2018, which thankfully provide some measure of reentry, provide some measure for which is still being litigated, I think, but for um, uh, compassionate release under extraordinary and compelling circumstances. You know, right some of the wrongs that um, I think existed. It's really, it's really overall, without going into great detail, and I served on a task force that uh, proudly that provided some next steps uh, to the First Step Act. But, but I, think, I think for those of us who want to see additional steps, we're very, also very happy to see a first step, and it matters that we have, we have these reforms in place. It matters on so many levels. It really identified the need in the, in the federal prison system, the, the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, that, that did not exist. Many states had already moved on these things, and most states had most of what is in the First Step Act in place in their own states. But it, it obviously focused on rehabilitative programming. It and some disproportionate sentencing. It corrected some of the wrongs and disproportionate sentencing. Obviously, not going as far as many would would have liked. I think it has the ability and has done some real good. Again, earned time credit opportunities exist in it, and and so many things. And and it, you know, it reduces and clarifies some mandatory minimums. I mean, all of these things that. That many on the on the on the right and the middle and the left have been talking about for some time. So it was good to see it was good to see some measure uh, of reform at that level. Um, and I think I think we have some hope that 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 will continue. So a decentralized system, local versus state versus federal politics, good first step law. That's the first step to to improving our uh, mass incarceration problem. But it feels like politicians that get elected have an incentive to continue to be in representative office and it's easy to be tough on crime and similarly judges that are elected in states and local governments across the nation also it's easy for them to be tough on crime whatever that means do you think that's also enabled mass incarceration is it hard for a politician to say no let's Let's do something that is more humane as opposed to just a, a law that keeps people in prison. The, the short answer is yes. It does make it more difficult when when we elect judges and we elect the, the policymakers who vote on criminal justice laws in this country. And, and it certainly is the safer route in many ways. It doesn't make it the right route. It certainly doesn't... Uh, uh, say good things uh, about our system. 
because ultimately we should all be trying to do what's right and, and what actually does benefit and enhance public safety. I mean, it is possible to be smart on crime but remain tough on criminals. And, and again, we, we want to make sure we define you know, that appropriately but um, because it, 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 certainly in my opinion and the opinion of many others, we, we incarcerate far too many low-level offenders, whether those are drug offenders or not, who, who should not be incarcerated in jail or prison. And we keep too many people pretrial, as we've been discussing. So there's got to be careful there. But I think, I think just, just having served and, and having served with some really good colleagues who didn't come from the criminal justice background, they weren't, they weren't lawyers, didn't, didn't work in the system, didn't have any experience in it. I, t- I tell you when they began to understand it, though, I think it's clearly easier to always, whether you're an elected judge or an elected official, it's always easier to vote for that tough on crime policy as opposed to that reformative measure. Because, you know, let's say out of a thousand successes, one bad thing happens. You know, one individual released, whether it's early or not, reform is always blamed for whatever whatever crime occurs, whatever serious crime occurs in that community. If 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 that if it's tied in any way, if it's it even even time wise, if it happened in the in the same time period, it, it uh, the reform measures become oftentimes the target of of criticism and the target of backlash in in, in the media. And so whether whether you're uh, serving the house or the state house or the state senate or your governor, you vote on these things. You've got to be prepared to explain to your constituents why. And I, in my personal experience, I. I was pushing significant reform, bold reform. Each and every session, I was I was chair of my House Judiciary Committee, and I was able to explain to my constituents why. And I think it resonated with people to the extent that they that the one example. So, Yvonne, one example is that is the drug epidemic. Everyone knows somebody who had a substance use disorder, and and nearly everyone does, and nearly everyone also knows someone who was ensnared in the criminal justice system because of it. And that began to affect people in such record numbers, with such, in such you know, in such dramatic numbers. I mean, uh, just giving so so the opioid epidemic for one. I mean, that's that's we all know we're still uh, we're still facing an epidemic within a pandemic right now with the opioid ep- epidemic, and we could talk about that all day long. I mean, overdose deaths are trickly, ticking back up now. It's clear, and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, substance use disorder is still um, an epidemic. With that said. I think there there began to be an understanding in, in communities and, and and in constituencies that if you frame it in that way, I think that was the one of the openings that you that we we know that drug arrests are up and we know that um, continuing to fight the drug war in the same way. Now we need we need to battle this epidemic, but to fight the same traditional drug war in, under under the guise that we can just you know lock everyone up and and, and problem solved. It's just an absolute fallacy, and people began to realize that. So alternative approaches became um, accepted. And so, so states began to, to modernize drug codes, began to, to look at possession differently than trafficking, of course. And, and those, are, those are just two, two examples, but began to look at a number of things differently. So there was significant reform, began to increase felony threshold levels. In other words, the amount at which you would you know, the, the value of something before you would uh, be charged with a felony or a misdemeanor crime. Those were popular reforms. And, and, and so the, the list goes on. But generally still, for bold reform, most legislators are not willing to, uh, to, to go as far as, as many see necessary. And I'm one of those that thinks we need to go f- further and be bolder in our approach because we still, well, you heard the numbers when we began our, <laughs> began our interview. I mean, we're still... We're still not there. What should our goal be? Over what kind of time frame? How will we know when we're there? Yes, it's difficult to point to an, an uh, a number, and, and I think we'll know when we're close. And I think we are seeing modest declines now. A lot of the declines we've seen over the past year have been due to COVID and uh, backed up court dockets. I think, sadly, I think the dam will eventually break, and you'll see populations go, go back up um, from some of these um, declines um, of the past few months. But, but, but generally still, we've, we've seen modest declines. And I think uh, until we, I mean, it, again, it's, it's always difficult when I'm talking to a, a group, when I was, whether I was an elected officer, appointed officer, an executive branch, to say to, 
to those wanting to know more. I'd say, you know, we live in a country that values liberty and, and our freedom. And we, we've seen that, that, you know, it's don't, you know, obviously that's a, a, a battle cry. But we also live in a country which, which values prison and, and takes away liberty um, for things that it shouldn't, in, in, in my opinion, again, in the opinion of many others. I mean, and, and I think the numbers bear that out. And so when we get to a point where we, as a country that values freedom and liberty, as we do, and as we rightly do, under our Constitution, when we get to a point where we're, we're no longer the, the world leader in incarceration, I, 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 and we're closer to an average or below that average, and we're closer to understanding that the people serving in prison we're afraid of rather than simply mad at. So we need to distinguish. I think that cannot be said enough. I, that quote's been attributed to me, and it's not. Didn't, in my state, at least, it was a true, and it, it did not come from me, but it was one that resonated with people that we need to distinguish who we're mad at and who we're afraid of. Prison exists for a reason, uh, but it, it, it shouldn't exist um, for all reasons, and, and it, it really should be relegated to, 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 to housing our most serious offenders. Those prison beds need to be reserved for those um, who need to be segregated from society. And I think we can. I think I think we can find alternatives, and we have found a number of alternatives for others that are far more beneficial and provide far more public safety. By the way, for our communities. One of the things that Tara really stuck out for me, what Tara said, was that every single person she met in prison was a victim first, and getting people to really talk about the fact that these offenders were victims first. And, and, and that really stuck out to me. And given the fact that we have the highest mass incarceration numbers in the world, we, we, you've mentioned and talked about how those incarceration numbers are modestly going down. What's stopping us from reducing these numbers? Like, what is standing in the way of reform? It feels like there's so many things working against us. Well, I, I think, you know, going back to and I, um, what we touched on a, a moment ago, um, finding, you know, finding the political will, finding that in our elected officials, or at least demanding it from our elected officials, that they, they follow the evidence, that, that they, they vote on best policies and best practices, as opposed to, you know, anecdotal extremes, as, as Tara mentioned, legislating based on on what we know to be true rather than uh, our gut or, or just, again, sensational uh, stories. So data, real data is what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, perish the thought that we actually rely on, on data. You know, it's, it's a, it, it always, yeah, that's right. It always strikes me that uh, none of us would, would uh, would want to ever fly an airplane with pilots who used um, you know uh, weather data from from the, the previous month or relied on on in- incoming information that was was stale or old or not credible or inaccurate. But that's what we do. That's what we do in criminal justice, and we take people's liberty over it, and we we base our policy decisions on it, and we 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 use programs oftentimes that that um, we think work. We're not sure. I mean, that's gotten better. Certainly, we've validated. A number of things in criminal justice, and for instance, a lot of the legislation that I sponsored and passed required that we used evidence-based programming, which means you know programs we we at least studies indicate will actually work uh, to meet their their ultimate stated objectives, and 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 that's that's a good thing. But we still we still we still um, have a system where our uh, policymakers and our practitioners, those who rely on information and who and I think by and large what we've got to a point the good, the good news is we've gotten to a point where people want more information some, some still don't but more do but yet we don't have that real-time data that feeds into those decisions which can be made uh, by practitioners on a daily basis uh, so take a take a parole officer speaking of the overworked and underpaid and the underappreciated a parole officer in the field trying to help an individual reenter society with stable housing and transportation and, and substance use disorder treatment, whether you know, or mental illness treatment, um, and finding employment. Um, and oh, by the way, trying to track a um, hundred of these people for one individual is, is the norm. I mean, that's, that's, uh, 
that's that's not unheard of. The caseloads could be as high as 100 people. They were in my state. I, we were uh, certainly at justice over corrections and corrections housed probation and parole. And the average caseload for one of ours was was like 95 cases. So they're trying to track each individual, by the way, making roughly $35,000 a year, and dealing with people who are suffering from all of these conditions, trying to reenter society, simply trying to get back on their feet and, and reintegrate. And and can you imagine then having no information, no no real-time feedback as to what's going on and what's working, but if we could use data and the power of of these systems to provide you know, alerts and um, information just at the, right, on, right on a cell phone, just, just real time, uh, whether someone is, is actually eligible for um, an expedited release due to good behavior or, or by the way, they've, they've fallen out of treatment and they need help or they, um, their, their job interviews that are available, connecting them to that or stable housing has become available. Um, just any number of things or, or just, oh, by the way, cognitive behavioral therapy is now um, available, or by the way, they've missed the class. So, like, just just that follow up, and then we know that just that constant follow up works. So, the fragmented nature of the state, local, federal governments, and courthouses and systems that we have in place means that the data is fragmented, and that it's in all these different places. Which means that uh, people who are on the ground, who are parole officers, who are um, in charge of prisons, they don't have all of the data in one place and aren't able to make good decisions based on that data. It, it sounds like we have a problem that kind of needs a holistic approach that needs to be sort of overhauled from a strategic level as opposed to a logistical level. Oh, I think so. I think I think we need um, data across the country to be normalized. I think it needs to, in, in other words, it needs to be transferred into a common extensible platform where it can be, again, be used in a way that is, is by the way, digestible, is consumable, is understandable. It doesn't come in like a ream of this huge spreadsheet that's miles long and, and hard to, to digest. Those who would want to know about a particular policy, we, we can't expect our, our legislators, and again, I can be critical, but I can also certainly be supportive and defensive of, of how difficult a job can be. You're, you know, you're trying to keep track of hundreds of issues. And so when, when we try to boil down an issue in criminal justice to a policymaker, we better be able to do it in a one-page format and provide them the data quickly and, and succinctly. And, and we can do that now. We didn't. I didn't have that. I didn't have that when I was a a legislator. I had some historical data, so I was trying to look. I was looking backward. Well, this gives us a chance to look forward through our our, our windshield, as opposed to back through our rearview mirror and, and out the out the back of the vehicle. And so that's significant to, to me. To me, it's a game changer in so many ways, and not just for the parole officer was one example, but the leaders in corrections, a governor, a uh, a legislator, a judge, a law enforcement official, a police officer on the street. Anybody who could who could access the data to see real time feedback on on how things are, are working, to me that that is a real game changer. And again, something that I didn't have, and I just I just left justice in, at the end of twenty nineteen. Do you think we have reform fatigue? I mean, it feels like maybe that's stopping us as well, to a certain extent. Absolutely, it's it's been said so many times. I know it was said in in my state and. And I was always, I gotta, be, I gotta tell you, I was offended by it. And I'll tell you why. All of us who ran for office were elected and we took an oath to serve. And to then look at your constituents and say, I'm tired. That just, that, and that's actually what that is. It's like, it's, it's just, I'm tired. Well, are you tired? So you're gonna quit on it. It's just so we passed education reform a number of years ago. Are we gonna stop passing good measures to help educate our children and our, and, and others in, in, in higher ed. I mean, are we going to stop? You know, we have transportation fatigue. I mean, our, our, I mean, what? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that they just. I, I know that a number of legislators, just not in my state, but across the country, said, "Hey, we we took a shot at this justice reinvestment thing, and and you know, we've we've uh, we've we've done it now. And uh, I took my tough vote, and I'm I'm through. And it was a it was it was simply a way to push it." along to the next, maybe the next generation of legislators. It was a way to kick that can, you know, just a little bit further. It just always struck me as, as really irresponsible. And if you, if you tell me you don't agree, 
I, I could actually respect that. You, I, I just don't agree with it. And I had a number of people tell me that. I think I think they're wrong, <laughs> but um, I could respect that as opposed to giving me a, uh, you know, some kind of uh, reason that, that sounds like I'm tired. Why do you keep working on this? It comes from an internal, I think, fire that just continues to burn. I remember the first time I was a young prosecutor and worked in the system, but defended cases as well, and always considered myself fairly balanced in, uh, in my approach and never forgot the words of a mentor when I began prosecuting that said, it's, it's not about what you can do, but it's about what you should do. And I always took a lot of pride in that. And, but I can remember going to a legislative conference, my first, and hearing for the first time that we led the world in incarceration. So those very numbers we just discussed were put to me, and I was, I was flabbergasted. I didn't, I didn't have any appreciation for where we ranked as a, as a country, or for that matter, as a state, my state at that time, Kentucky. Never understood that. And it frankly, as a, it, it embarrassed me, it, it angered me, it saddened me, it, uh, it embarrassed me for my state at the time. We, we've, we've actually done a good job to relinquish the, the, the world leader in prison growth as a state, but as a country, you know, we're still grappling with it. Um, and my, my state still could do more. I don't mean we've, we've reached some level of, uh, of satisfaction. I don't mean that at all, but we're no longer the, an embarrassment that I thought we were in terms of prison growth. But it, it, all those emotions bubbled up in me, and, and I was, like many of us who had, um, you know, parents who said wise things. I'll never forget my father saying to me, when you, when you see an injustice, you know, there are two ways to, to approach it. I mean, as some people walk away and some people work on it, work to fix it, work to address it and clear it. And, and I just, I, I've never forgotten that. And I think, I think it just it has to do with the empathy as well. And empathy is something we've talked a lot about as a country. But I think we have to empathize with those who are ensnared and in the system. And uh, obviously, that whatever response the criminal justice system should make should be a- appropriate and reasonable, and it should produce the best outcome. And, and I, I don't think we're close to that yet. What are you hopeful about then? Yeah, I'm hopeful that we're talking about it. I'm ho- I mean, we weren't talking about this years ago. We were, you know, again being a prosecutor and not knowing any of what I know now to me is troubling. I mean, I think oftentimes really good people, um, really good colleagues of mine who who defend cases, who prosecute these cases, who work in the system, who, who are judges, who work in criminal justice, you know, they still may not have an appreciation for exactly where we are, but they certainly uh, many more do now than did, let's say, 15 years ago. That's, the, that's w- without question. So the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that most states have made progress and have enacted reforms, significant reforms, landmark reforms, and the fact that we've seen a modest decline, I'm hopeful about all those things. And I'm hopeful that we. It, it feels as if, even though reform fatigue exists, it feels as if there is still momentum. It feels as if there is momentum at the, at the federal level and at state and local level uh, for reform at all levels of the criminal justice system. It feels like there is a, a movement to accept treatment as the default response to addiction rather than prison or jail, and that those who are suffering from mental illness need, need treatment and compassion and understanding as opposed to a jail cell. It feels like we're talking about those things more than we ever have, and that's really hopeful, and that's actually what drives us. And and, and finally, I'll say I uh, find myself at, at 52 still still burning pretty brightly for reform, but I also am really um, taken by the number of people younger than me uh, uh, who, in their 20s and 30s, who are, are finding that this is their calling in life, that, and they're leaving, they're, they're going into what I consider you know, areas of public service, whether it be work as a for a nonprofit or work in the in the public sector, at working in the criminal justice space directly, or working uh, beside it or with it in the same sphere. I mean, I think that's that's really promising and hopeful for the future. That so many so many young people uh, I work with are, are are recognizing that this exists and they want to uh, to address this injustice. What advice can you give to them to bring about change? Something more than just working in the in the sector. Is there sage advice that you can give them? 
I think it's a civic duty to be involved. I think obviously it begins with, you know, listening to those we elect. I think the policies are set at that level. And that means in all elections, not just not state or federal, I think at all levels, it's important. Certainly uh, some positions impact criminal justice more than others, but I think it's important to listen. Not everyone can work directly in the field, clearly. I mean, that's not possible, but but there are so many ways to volunteer. There's so much need. You know, I think about the children impacted by incarceration. By the hundreds of thousands of children impacted, there are things to do to support them and to break cycles of, of uh, incarceration within, within communities and families. Tara talked about victimization, and she's right. When I visited our, our women's facilities here in my state, and I visited them across the country, I'm always struck by the stories from people in prison generally, but, but even more so with women in prison, the level of, of emotional and physical and sexual abuse, sadly, so they can get involved at supporting shelters and crisis centers and, and homeless shelters and, and working to do any number of things that can, uh, you know, can serve as a response to, to what are you know, society's problems and, and, and not just the problems of the criminal justice system. And by the way, that's you know, something I haven't said, but you know, for those who work in the system, you know, we've, 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 <laughs> we've forced those all the way from law enforcement to, to ju- judges to, 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 to jailers and, 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 and corrections officials and, and policymakers to, I mean, the, the criminal justice system has become the default for mental illness and substance use disorder. Now, we've begun to rectify that. What I'm saying is not to blame anyone working in the system. It, the system has been asked to handle things it was never designed to, to handle and to try to resolve. And that's one of the problems. We could, it, it, there's so much to this ongoing debate. To the advice of someone trying to get involved, the, that understanding is necessary. And then finding a way to give back and contribute. I think if we all do that, I think we can begin to see tremendous progress. Our series will continue next week when we'll hear more from Tara Simmons, and we'll also speak with Andrew Warren, the head of product at Recidivis. Among the topics we'll discuss is how government has failed to use data to make a meaningful difference in keeping people out of the criminal justice system. Here's some of what Andrew had to say. I think what we really need is a focus on outcomes, not on processes and not on operations. If every agency focuses right now on are we fulfilling the number of contacts that we're required to with folks who are on supervision? Am I checking the box on, you know, the set of programming I was required to give this person, etc.? But they're not seeing the outcome metrics and they're not creating a feedback loop to those metrics. Then all we're doing is kind of the system serves itself, it doesn't serve the people who are a part of it. If the criminal justice system could cross all of those different silos of the courts and the police and the corrections and the supervision folks and get data in one place that allowed them to see what was the end-to-end outcome for the people, then I think you'd see a lot more focus on getting folks IDs as soon as they get out of prison, getting folks the resources that they need to get set back up in a society that they left 20, 30 years ago before there were even smartphones. Like there, There's just not that much focus on the human side of the issue because no one's looking at the outcomes a lot of the time. Join us next time for the second episode of our series, Meeting the Moment, Using Data to Reimagine Criminal Justice. We hope you'll subscribe. You can find out more online at 107.com slash moment. Thank you for listening.